In the past, even five years ago, being a fast follower, even just a, a strong, not super fast follower versus first mover, there were certainly differences in those strategic postures, but the outcomes weren't that drastically different. I think now we're starting to see a divergence where being a first mover or extremely fast follower has a significant economic benefit to being sort of a more traditional follower. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. In today's episode, we'll discuss how digital leaders execute strategic moves with a speed and power that far exceeds those of their non-digital peers. I'm pleased to speak today with the co-authors of a recent McKinsey Quarterly cover story titled The Drumbeat of Digital, How Winning Teams Play. Tanki Caitlin is a senior partner in our Boston office. He concentrates on digital strategy and insurance and is also a leader of our Digital Quotient Initiative. Laura LaBerge is a member of the Digital Strategy and Digital Organization Service Lines based in our Stamford, Connecticut office. She focuses on issues related to digital disruption. Laura, Tanki, it's my pleasure to welcome both of you. Laura, let's start with you. You and Tanki have written before about the pitfalls that make corporate strategies fail. How does this new research on the drumbeat of digital build on that? Where we wanted to start was really looking at what do we understand about disruption? Disruption isn't new. Digital didn't invent it. It's been happening for centuries. And we can learn a lot about disruptions of the past. So prior to digital, incumbents typically experienced less than a 20% survival rate during extreme disruptions. So if you look at what happened in the penicillin industry or tires, various different types of industries and various different flavors of disruption saw a lot of organizations not able to navigate the course of those disruptions successfully. We talked to over 2,000 organizations, and we asked them, how well prepared do they feel to navigate this course of change? And 92% of them did not feel that their current business model and current approach would be economically viable through the course of digitization. So we see that there's a lot of uncertainty about being able to deliver success and capture these opportunities that are being seen or defend against these threats. And so one of the things that Tanji and I have looked at uh, is really trying to understand why is this so hard? I mean, strategy is always hard, but it seems like it's particularly hard in the context of digital. We did a bunch of research, both in terms of looking at many different organizations that are attempting uh, large digital transformations uh, in depth, and then also uh, surveying thousands of organizations who are attempting digital change at various scales and various degrees of success. We identified five reasons why strategies tend to fail when it comes to the context of digital. The first is around fuzzy definitions. If you ask 10 different companies, how do they define digital, you'll probably get about 12 different answers. And this is because of the complex nature of digital. Digital needs to be defined in two dimensions. One is the economic aspect of digital and how that is changing the business model. So you have the fact that you can have uh, instant and perfect replication of IP if you look at software. So manufacturing a car, if you want to manufacture a 1,000 cars, each car costs a significant amount to build. 
once you've built the initial software, replicating it to a thousand or million, very low cost, almost zero. These assets can also be replicated nearly perfectly and then disseminated through very large-scale, large uh, markets. So there's a whole host of economic implications of this that change a lot of the old-school rules of thumb of understanding value, profit, and competition. So economies are driven by supply and demand curve. We've all studied that in school. Once you start looking at how those curves, the supply and the demand curve start switching and moving when your marginal cost becomes zero, which is what you are describing when the replication of a piece of music is completely free because it's digital and it's instant and perfect. The migration of those curves is so massive that you lead to completely different business models. We no longer buy CDs. We have a subscription business. Very, very few organizations spend the time understanding and mapping out the economic impact of digital on those supply and demand curve and the implication it has for substitute and complementary products and therefore fall completely surprised when they see that the ecosystem in which they compete is evolving very, very rapidly. For many, it's actually a significant threat. Most of you are providing an operational definition of digital, which allows you to know who in the organization is in charge of what. You need an operational definition that is quite integrated and recognizes the fact that digital actually allows you to have real-time engagement with um, people and uh, equipment. Uh, We are living in a connected world. uh, And that the information that you can gather from uh, this uh, real-time connection allows you to rethink many of the decision-making processes and automate them and streamline them. And then the uh, analytics layer that you put on top of that uh, is going to lead to a predictive engagement model that leads to eventually different business models. But the important message on this is too many organizations focus on the operational definition and completely underestimate the economic implications of a digital economy, which leads them to not sizing the threats to their current business economics. Laura, can you elaborate how these new economics of digital are changing the competitive landscape for incumbent companies? So most organizations have spent the last decade or sometimes multiple decades getting a very real sense of how to make trade-offs in their business, where the profit pools are, understanding the structure of their value chain, and digital is changing all of this. So first of all, on an overarching level, digital is currently actually destroying more economic value for incumbents than it's creating. And this is traditional value pools. So if we think about why is this happening, there are really two main drivers of this. So the first is that digital is creating transparency that transfers a much higher percentage of value directly to customers or end users than in the past. Digital marketplaces uh, are creating price transparency. They're creating uh, opportunities for disintermediation. I think most of us are are familiar with Amazon or organizations like Tencent. They are uh, allowing unbundling, uh, which is 
you know, bundling is in many industries one of the large drivers of how they're able to protect their margins, and digital is disrupting that. And they are also commoditizing, if you think about what's been happening in the travel agency uh, business for the last decade or so. And so this is a huge shift in the way that value is distributed between companies and end users. The second big mechanism for this value destruction is the consolidation of value pools. New digital offerings are often much more integrated and end-to-end than the individual offerings in the past. I think probably the most accessible example of this is if you think of smartphones. So the smartphone not only replaced the old phone, but it replaced the camera, the GPS or navigation device. It replaced a music player. It replaced uh, video game uh, consoles in certain uh, circumstances. Um, It allows you to watch TV now. There's all kinds of different aspects that these devices are allowing you to do. And if you add up the cost of all those individual devices that it replaces, as expensive as a lot of smartphones are, they're still a lot cheaper than having to buy those individual devices. And so you see this overall shrinking of value pool due to this consolidation as well as transfer of value to customers. And so the remaining uh, digital value pools are smaller than they have been traditionally. And the mechanisms for these transfers are sometimes quite abrupt. So how does that destruction of value that you describe square with the potential value creation from these entirely new digital offerings? Or do you mean that the value destruction is just on the incumbent side? Yeah, so that's a good question. And so when we built this model, we were doing the economic model off existing businesses. So this was looking at what is happening to incumbents' existing value pools. And if they don't change the way they do business, what will continue to happen to their existing value pools? It was not a crystal ball that create that would predict what new value could be created in digital. And so, you know, while right now over the past couple of years, digital has taken maybe like half a point off GDP, we don't expect that trend to continue because digital is in fact creating new value and as these old value pools shrink and or are destroyed, new value pools will be created. And that's actually part of why this mechanism that we're talking here is so important is if you're still, you know, innovating around these edges of these increasingly shrinking value pools, it becomes a game that's much harder to win, whereas if you're now moving into these new and growing value pools that are being created, you have a much greater chance of remaining economically viable or even, you know, really being incredibly uh, high growth. And so organizations need to really understand the dynamics of how is their overall value changing and where is it going to. I think the other thing that's interesting to note just on this is if you look at a lot of these industries, the source of disruption wasn't from an existing player in the value chain. So a lot of times these are plays that are coming across industries and the value is being siphoned from one industry to another. And so, again, the traditional ways of looking at a single monolithic value chain and understanding your place in it and the dynamics and flow of the value within that, those models are breaking down. I think, Laura, um, what you just described is a wonderful illustration of the economic definition of digital, um, the consolidation of the marketplace. What it leads to is a winner-take-all environment where not only is the profit pool shrinking and uh, distributed primarily to the customer, but the participants, companies, see their pie being redistributed with uh, very few people winning. Amazon is probably one of the most 
telling one, where over the course of uh, just a little over a decade, uh, the profit pool has been completely, completely distributed on only one player. I think the market capitalization and the gain of Amazon are just uh, absolutely remarkable. Uh, we see that happen across many, many industries. So once you have disruption coming, and as Laura described, typically comes from a part of the ecosystem, you can expect the accelerations of uh, profit aggregations by a few, typically two or three, is quite remarkable. If you read one of the articles published by your McKinsey Global Institute about the 25 years of digitalization, you'll see that in many industries, uh, the top 10 players control about 90% of the profit pools in those areas where digital has not taken hold. So it's important for you to think strategically about what your objectives are, you know, remaining number seven or eight or ten in the market in the age of digital disruption is not a viable strategy. Thanks, Tangi. So given this winner-take-all scenario, what does that mean in terms of how an incumbent would and should invest? It seems to imply that you either have to go really big or go home. I think you're exactly right. You're going to need to move faster and be bolder. Bolder might be, you know, on repositioning yourself on the chessboard, and that involves uh, M&A, both acquisition and divestiture. Uh, the second thing is, you know, it's a musical chair game, so you need to be at the point when there are still chairs for you to compete. You need to move faster toward your, uh, your objective. So along those lines, one of the points that Tangi just alluded to is that you have to move faster and you have to move first. In the past, even five years ago, being a fast follower, even just a a strong, not super fast follower versus first mover, there were certainly differences in those strategic postures, but the outcomes weren't that drastically different. I think now we're starting to see a divergence where being a first mover or extremely fast follower has a significant economic benefit to being sort of a more traditional follower. And Part of the reason for this is the rate at which organizations are able to learn with digital. So in the past, it was often six months after the product, the initial product launch before you'd do the postmortem. You'd understand, you know, what was working, what didn't work, both in terms of the go-to-market as well as the product of itself. You'd feed that that back into the development loop and then launch version 2.0. Now, with a lot of digital products and with organizations that have adopted Agile, you can have three-day iterations. What this causes is a much more rapid divergence between first movers and Me Too players. The first mover, rather than being on version 2.0, when someone else is able to stand up their next version of the product, they're on version 30. And this is what causes and drives some of the huge advantage of first movers, as well as the network effects. If you're able to lock in strategic partnerships and you're the first one to do that, you know, there's a lot of cases where you just, from a scale perspective, you, you win. Um, and it's very difficult for someone to come in and replicate that. Do some industries that are heavily regulated, uh, for example, like insurance, uh, which we know you spend some time in, Tangi, face unique challenges in moving so fast? I mean, we know that regulators, for example, are oftentimes pretty slow to respond to innovations. Well, it's a very good question. And when I say that, it means that the answer will not be at the same level, but um, there are probably three considerations. The first one is regulation might be uh, too easy of an excuse. When we look at where the needs are uh, in digital, it's typically easily represented on a two-by-two where one dimension is 
the value that you can create for the customer, the customer pain point, the experience. And then on the other hand is the profit pool. It's where is actually the profit to be made. If you think about insurance, for instance, uh, I think it's relatively easy for us to go to distribution or claims as area where the experience is not uh, commensurate to the expectations. And those areas are not necessarily the more regulated. You know, a lot of it might be more regulated in terms of product design, pricing, etc. Uh, so the first part is understanding where actually is the opportunity for value creation. The second one is, um, indeed, you will tend to find that attackers care less about the regulations they have less to lose. And oftentimes you find that you have a few attackers that are leading the way in developing solutions. And fortunately, they neither have the brand nor the customer and oftentimes not the, uh, um, uh, the capital to be able to scale. And so what we're seeing is a number of insurance companies trying to uh, acquire and integrate uh, the disruption that comes from some of the attackers. Uh, but most importantly, we found increasingly that those companies that are proactively engaging with the regulators on developing digital solutions that address the expectations and the requirements and the principles uh, that uh, the regulators want um, can, uh, can make progress. It is important to recognize that capital and regulations are two of the most important immigrants to uh, rapidly uh, digitizing the enterprise. But there are many opportunities that are at the confluence of customer experience and uh, where the profit pools are high that uh, typically you can start with. Um, you'll find that there are enough attackers that will force regulators to open up the doors in certain areas. But most importantly, it's you know, how you are proactively engaging and shaping the dialogue with the regulators uh, that, that will allow you to accelerate your business problem. And just to build on what Tangi just said, this notion of you know, digital players and traditional incumbents having influence on regulators is a really important point because sometimes it's literally just flipping a switch. Um, and so the more that companies are aware of when, especially when it's players who are outside the, their traditional value chain, it's players they're not normally looking at, if those players are really working with regulators, it's important to pay attention to that because a lot of times those are the types of changes that really break down a specific barrier between two sectors, and they aren't always seen coming. Thanks, Laura. So, so you mentioned the importance of being fast. What about the other aspect that Tangi mentioned, the boldness? How do you define that? So digital is actually changing a lot of different paradigms. But one of the things that I find the most fascinating is how it's changing what the notion of playing it safe really is. In the past, you'd think playing it safe means you make these very predictable incremental changes. You're innovating sort of on the edges, but in a steady path forward. And it turns out that in digital, that's increasingly not the safest path. The path to best success tends to be truly innovating around new digital offerings rather than applying digital lipstick only to your existing offerings. And I think this is a mindset shift that a lot of incumbents are struggling with because it's not the way they're used to doing their innovation and, and growth projections. But one of the things that we've seen when we looked at the companies that were very successful in digital was that their approach to innovating and building out new offerings is much bolder and much less incremental. So how and where do digital leaders make these bolder moves? What does your research show? Tangi? Um, as the value pools are shifting and organizations try to go and capture those value pools, 
they need to reposition themselves. The companies that have performed the best have been more aggressive on the M&A front in acquiring digital businesses in those areas that are representing those new value pools. 33% uh, of those top performers, M&A activity was focused on that, which is uh, more than 50% more than for the other companies. The other interesting element is that to compete in those new value pools, not only do you need to have business there, but very often you need to compete in it. You need to understand at the granular level, you know, customer needs, you need the design functions, you need to leverage data analytics, you know, at scale and using advanced analytics methodologies. You're going to need to have, you know, modern technology environment. And so those same companies that are top performers are not only acquiring digital businesses, but they're also acquiring digital capabilities. They're acquiring talent, they're doing M&A for the purpose, not having a product or a service, but having competencies. And that's a relatively new phenomenon. It's one that we have seen in certain industries tech in the past, and we start to see much more prevalent across industries. So it's an important element. Are companies putting in any guardrails to manage the risk of making bold bets, especially with M&A? While there are some guardrails, and those are important, uh, one of the more important things is actually increasing the pulse of learning and the way in which that's fed back in to course correct along the way. So there is a sort of agility of learning as well as course correcting with product project launches and uh, other types of decisions where, you know, you test quickly, pull the plug quickly, quickly or, or scale it quickly, um, that de-risks this to a certain extent. But it is, in a lot of cases, less about the guardrails and more about allowing this more dynamic learning that helps de-risk some of this. And I think, Laura, to address some specific question on m and uh, in general, what you'll tend to see is a larger number of smaller acquisitions than the big transformative ones, unless you are really far advanced in the level of disruption that you observe in your industry and you don't have a choice. Um, but, you know, those organizations that are doing well are building M&A machines and they are continuously on the look for organizations that can, over time, evolve where they are competing. Okay, so the profit pools are shifting. You have a few winners taking most of the profits. And they often come from beyond the industry. Is there something, you know, what, what's driving these pretty profound changes? Our economy is migrating towards what we describe as an ecosystem-based economy. The largest companies in terms of market capitalization globally used to be organizations that would be very specifically focused on a specific industry and would be either relying on significant level of capital or a very large number of employees. What you witness just a decade later is that it's a completely different type of companies that are dominating. You know, those are what we would describe as ecosystem-based uh, companies that are redefining more than one category at the time. You see them in the likes of the Microsoft, Amazon, alphabets of the world. We have studied what share of, you know, worldwide sales are currently controlled by an ecosystem, and how is this going to evolve over the course of the next uh, few years? And so uh, just three or four years ago, that share was, you know, shy of 10%, but was a very small part of our economy that was really in the hands of those ecosystem players. Um, what we are projecting and the pace of progress that we are witnessing now is that by 2025, we will reach, uh, you know, uh, getting close 
uh, to a quarter, if not a third, of the uh, of the worldwide uh, economy. Now, it is happening very fast in certain geographies, already almost a dominant way in China. It's uh, less mature in uh, other markets, uh, but the trend is certainly hitting very fast. Um, basically, we believe that the $60 trillion of global revenue pool by 2025 will be concentrated in just 12 ecosystems. Wow. Um, so say a little bit more about ecosystems, and, and can you just clarify that a little bit more as to what an ecosystem is? If you're a customer today and you are trying to manage your house, you're probably trying to figure out you know, your mortgage, trying to figure out your insurance, trying to figure out your utility. In an ecosystem-based economy, you would have very likely one node, one point of effect that is aggregating all of those services for you. Um, and uh, it leads to a very different dynamic in uh, how you are competing as to whether you are the orchestrator of the ecosystem or a provider to it. And that's one of the most fundamental strategic questions that many organizations will need to rest, which is one, which ecosystems do they belong to? Second, within that ecosystem, you know, are they a platform architect? Are they uh, uh, just a uh, product or service provider? And what types of partnerships do they need to put in place uh, to become and remain relevant? That's a, a very important, I think, forward-moving challenge for many organizations. So how do the companies that you studied manage all these changes while still running their existing businesses successfully? So if we look at how are different organizations handling this, it would make sense that the way in which you approach balancing these would flex depending on both the degree of change that you're experiencing is your entire business model basically being blown up because the economics have become completely unviable, or is it a minor change? And then also the pace of change. Do you have 20 years to get a hold of this, or is this happening right now and you've got probably two or three years max to make the pivot? For organizations that are facing a high degree of change in a short period of time, you know, they have really no choice but to make very bold and aggressive moves to survive. You know, this is really going to be traditionally uh, more of an M&A type play because you just you don't have time to make this sort of change organically. For organizations where the degree of change will eventually be high, but it's not happening today, they have more of the ability to try to balance between currently investing in their existing business model that, while it may be shrinking, it's not disappearing instantly, and also then using all of this capital that they have to invest in the path forward. Where is the growth going to be happening? For organizations where the change is low, but and they also have a lot of time, these organizations can just build up, you know, agile muscle and be ready to make minor or major pivots if they come. This is sort of the build agility play. And then for the, organi- for the industries where they don't see a whole lot of change happening and certainly nothing is happening right now, they can just sort of sit back and look around them, survey the land, cherry-pick where they see opportunities arise uh, and build capabilities to help, you know, be them in a position in case the landscape shifts. Do you have any data on how much of their investment and effort companies are dedicating to their new versus their existing businesses? So when we looked at a couple of thousand of organizations and asked them sort of where are they in this mix, we saw that 62% of them were trying to take this combined approach, this live-in-two-worlds approach, where they are 
both focusing on investing in their core business as well as building out new digital businesses. This is a very complex space, both just in terms of transforming your existing business. That's hard enough, right, because you've got to separate the, you know, build versus run and how do you, you know, keep the lights on while you're driving this change and remain have the mind share to do both. But when you're actually building out an entirely new digital business as an incumbent, right, there's all kinds of complexity with that. It can have a very different business and operating model, a very different culture, a very different set of economics. And so doing both at the same time is very complex. Indeed. Um, Do you have any advice on how organizations should approach this to ensure success? We go back to our theme of the drumbeat of digital, right? The, The pace of change is very high. Saying something you have to do something fast isn't super helpful if you don't know what that means. It was interesting. When we looked at organizations who were successful in navigating a major digital transformation, uh, successful in terms of economically successful as, you know, hitting the targets, maintaining the targets over time, um, what we found was that when we asked them, what was it that allowed you to do this? The two most important aspects that they talked about was having very strong alignment and commitment across the organization, not just across the C-level, but really throughout the organization. And then the second was clarity on the transformation strategy. So the good news about those two things is they're doable, right? It wasn't like we were able to magically get all the regulators to do, to do what we say or we happened to um, come up with this amazing Uh, innovation that's, you know, a decade ahead of everyone else in our industry, right? So these two things are actually achievable. We have monitored and observed dozens of companies across their management practices. How is it that they are running their businesses? How is it that they are making the decisions associated with all the questions you raised about, you know, M&A and deployment of talent and what initiatives to pursue and how much risk to take? And when we got the results, I think Laura and I, you know, uh, got a goosebumps because there was a very, very clear and consistent difference in metabolic rate between the companies that had the highest performance and the rest of their competitors across any industries. Um, what we found is that typically they were operating at a pace of decision making that was four times faster than what the traditional wisdom was. They were you're getting access to customer data and understanding customer preferences, you know, monthly, if not weekly, to be able to inform the next product release or manage their backlog for uh, redesigning experiences and features. Uh, they were uh, evaluating their portfolio for divestiture and acquisitions, you know, on a quarterly basis when most organizations do that as part of their annual planning. And so, the real challenge is, you know, you're going to need to find a way um, to do what you are doing today four times faster. And that really leads, <clears throat> excuse me, to all sorts of organizational and operating model uh, challenges uh, that uh, we think are quite critical. Um, one way to de-risk that and move faster is to uncouple some decisions making. So are you looking at digital investment? You don't need to really spend months studying whether you're going to make a $50 million commitment to an initiative. You may just you know, fund something that allows you to very quickly simulate and to the extent that simulation is encouraging, you know, fund a small print to start creating a concept, etc. And so one of the ways you can accelerate your metabolic rate is evolving towards you know, agile budgeting and agile practices. 
Okay, so we talked a little bit about M&A earlier as a lever to make rapid progress on digital. Does your research show leading companies having a stronger drumbeat on that front? Any metric you want to look at when it comes to digital M&A, it's, you know, a higher percent of, a higher percent of their overall revenue that they're spending on digital M&A. They're doing a larger number of deals. And of their total M&A budget, the percent of it that's allocated towards digital is higher. So it's across all of these dimensions that organizations who are really pushing ahead in digital and navigating this transformation are leveraging M&A. And M&A typically becomes a really critical component of being able to execute a digital strategy. What are the key steps or actions that companies need to take just to summarize in this digital age? I think the first one is understanding the economic definition of digital is pretty massive because that drives the nature of competition. You're going to need to be bold in that first movers are going to be rewarded and they will be at the end of the day very few winners to winner take hold the economy. Uh, to get to the destination, you're going to change the management practices of the organization to move faster and be bolder. And eventually, strategically, you're going to need to identify where you're competing in something that is much broader than an industry lens, which will be increasingly defined by ecosystems. The journey that you need to take on as a top management team involves an unconditional commitment to a shared vision because the changes of directions are pretty significant. You're going to need to change the way you think about your strategies and reframe the questions you're asking. It's not about maintaining or gaining some share. It's going achieving market dominance in your segment. It's about the willingness to act on M&A and be bold in some of the bets that you're placing uh, and hedging those bets. You're going to be, for many of you, struggling with the notion of how much do I focus on building the future, the new business model versus ripping off the value that's still embedded in my existing businesses by digitizing it. And, you know, that balance is a very hard one to, to, uh, to find. And then finally, you're going to probably need to become much more agile to be faster in the way your operations is adjusting and managing the best. Earlier, you mentioned that some economies like China are more advanced in the shift to ecosystems than others. Do you see a broader regional difference between fast-growing economies versus more established industrial economies in the speed with which they're moving to digital? Well, it's a brilliant question. The answer is in the question, which is... um, those are markets where people can leapfrog because they don't have, you know, very settled and established distribution channels. So we see a much higher pace of um, change uh, in China in, uh, in particular. And the other thing that I would say is that while the absolute uh, number of the frequency did shift a little bit, depending on whether it's a, you know, high growth or slow growth industry or region, the spread between the winners and the others was pretty constant. I mean, there are certain things like, for example, with M&A, because there are regulatory changes that uh, can come into play in, in different regions, that can also flex a little bit in a way that wouldn't just be, you know, is it high growth or low growth? But in general, yes. Okay, so what implications does your research have for mid-sized companies that may not have the resources to pursue large-scale M&A to acquire these digital, these needed digital capabilities? It's an interesting question. And actually, in the panel of organizations uh, that we, we surveyed, actually, there is a large percent of them that are mid-sized organizations. And we did see a lot of the same things. Now, obviously, they're not doing M&A on the same scale 
as, you know, some of these enormous incumbents. The other thing that we also see is, you know, when M&A isn't an option, partnerships are. And so, yes, sometimes you do become a target for an acquisition, but there are also opportunities to partner and to take that more uh, in a much more strategic way than simply, oh, I'm going to have a vendor who comes and does some of my back-end office stuff. I think that the fact that you have ecosystems emerging actually creates opportunities for a number of companies. I'll, I'll give a very simple example. eBay became a marketplace and it led to many small and medium-sized enterprises to all of a sudden no longer need to compete on marketing to be able to get exposure to customers. And so if you are smart enough to understand how those ecosystems are playing, you're not the the architect of the ecosystem. You're not eBay, as in the example I'm giving, but you are finding a marketplace that allows you to reach you know, millions of customers. I think that actually... Um, there are uh, numerous opportunities, but you need to rethink again where and how you're competing and, you know, what are your distribution channels, point of access to customers. So how do companies handle these organization-wide transformations? Are there specific constructs that you've seen that were particularly effective in helping support this need to reallocate talent and capital to high-priority digital ventures, for example? So I think there's a few different things that we've seen work well. And by the way, you know, this is one of the hardest aspects that we've seen organizations try to take on. This is one of the, one of the areas where companies fall down the most quickly. Um, having a chief digital officer or a t- chief transformation officer that does help, right, because you do have someone then who's sort of able to look across the business and understand and help balance the different competing asks and be the one to make the call uh, to help with these prioritizations. So that's definitely one aspect of it. I think another aspect of it is having clarity and alignment of the digital strategy. One of the most difficult uh, parts of having, you know, organization-wide reallocation of talent or financial resources, OpEx, CapEx, whatever, is when the business leaders don't agree on what's most important. And so then you get all this infighting and things stall out. One group will fund their part. The other group won't fund their part. They won't release the people that they're supposed to release, and, and everything just stalls out. So having very clear alignment on the strategy having a rigorous way of making these trade-offs. So in digital transformations, they tend to be quite broad. Often you see organizations who are having to make calls between uh, what is worth more to my company, an investment in customer experience or this productivity play, and I need to reallocate resources between them. You know, having clarity on that really helps. That's great. Uh, Tangi, Laura, thanks so much for being with us today. Any final thoughts that either of you would like to share? We are in the very first inning of the digital journey and transformation. I think we've only seen the very beginning of it, and there's a long, uh, long journey ahead. So very much looking forward to uh, the coming the coming years. Yes, likewise. Really looking forward uh, to continuing the conversation. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you all for joining us today inside the Strategy Room. A transcript of today's podcast will be posted on McKinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice website, where you can also find links to previous podcasts. And if you'd like to receive our latest insights, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. We look forward to having you join us again soon at another podcast, Inside the Strategy Room.